we take it in a very lighthearted way that you have to learn when you come to a new country. But in a workplace, it can present each, you know, its own challenges. For an example, I remember my manager asked to, you know, to prepare the preso. And then I almost miss, missed that deadline because I just didn't understand what it was. And it was not because I come from an Asian country. I've had friends coming from Germany, UK, and then really struggling to understand those slangs. My guest on today's podcast is Pan Pereira, the founder of Alavar Career Coaching. As you'll find out soon enough, I met Pan as a candidate. And after seeing some of his content on LinkedIn, I reached out to him to see if he would be a guest on the podcast today. Pan started Alavar Career Coaching with a passion to help international graduates and skilled migrants land the jobs that they deserve and pursue their dream careers. As you can imagine, there's a lot of overlap with his goals and mine in recruiting. And in this podcast, we cover the local experience barriers, the barrier of Australian business culture, as well as Aussie slang, and the ways to overcome these as an individual and support overcoming these when you're in a business. I think all hiring managers recognize the benefits of diversity these days. So this is really an important episode and and I do hope to get Pan on the podcast in future to dive a little bit further into some of these topics. Uh, But without further ado, here's the episode. Thanks. Pan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, John, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It's sort of like an interesting story for me personally of sort of how we met because I've been working in recruitment since 2019 and uh, you were probably one of the first candidates that actively reached out to me um, without me doing outreach, um, sort of saying that, you know, you were looking uh, for your next role and I wasn't in a position to help you then, but we've sort of stayed in touch and I noticed over the last few years the the Alavar career coaching page and and sort of more activity from you on LinkedIn. So we reached out and were able to tee up this podcast, but maybe do you want to start by giving people a little bit of your background and the Alavar career coaching things so they can understand the context for what this podcast might be about? For sure, uh, John. So um, my name is Pan Pereira and I'm the founder of Alivar Career Coaching. So um, as you touched on, I before founding Alivar back in 2021, I was working uh, in the IT field as a business applications manager. And I think this is the time when I uh, reached out to you uh, at the time of my job search. Um, so just a bit of a context before that, I moved back here back in um, uh, 2015 in, from Sri Lanka. Uh, I was facing challenges as other many other migrants to get a job in my preferred desired role. Um, and at the time, it was a business analysis. So it took me 516 rejections and six months of searching to land my first job. And after that, luckily, I was, was able to progress quickly uh, in my career here, moving to, you know, uh, from junior mid-level roles to senior roles, um, leadership roles in companies such as Kaufland uh, and Honda Australia as well. So after the pandemic, um, as we went through a very, as we all went through a very tough journey, um, I was working from home on my leadership role, and this is where I found my friends reach out to me uh, to write some resumes, cover letters, and then asking for help on how to, you know, get their first professional job in Australia. As I had went through that journey myself, uh, understanding how the job market works, the importance of LinkedIn reaching out. Um, that's where I started helping them out, just initially with resumes and. Um, I saw them getting results within a matter of week um, or two, really in the desired role that they want to. Um, so that's when I decided to, you know, it was more of a leap of faith, I would say, uh, to take this jump um, and start area career, career coaching. 
um, to really help people, uh, migrants land jobs in Australia with uh, or without uh, local experience. So the purpose behind Eliva uh, Career Coaching is helping migrants land jobs through modern job strategies and then creating awareness among companies to have supporting environments uh, for migrants and to promote diversity. So last two years, I've been able to um, help more than 150 uh, migrants land their jobs uh, in their preferred fields with all limited local experience. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's a it's a great story because it's a it's definitely an issue that employers face. And, and I think I was just saying to you before that um, I've sort of been in roles both uh, hiring as a recruiter and working with people that have limited local experience uh, and uh, in the role of employer um, doing the same thing. And uh, there's definitely a a tendency, whether it's amongst all businesses, but definitely uh, amongst the majority of businesses to, you know, maybe not have the same level of value for um, experience that's not in Australia. Um, And what it really does, and I always sort of felt it was doing, was effectively limiting the pool of people that you could pull from. Um, And by doing that as well, uh, unfortunately, making it really hard for a lot of migrants who are highly skilled uh, to get their first job in in Australia. I totally agree that uh, on that, John, because uh, it's just um, just to um, echo your statement on limiting uh, the pool of candidates, uh, especially around the skills that the migrants build, uh, bring into the roles, it just uh, creates that gap, especially around uh, the skill shortage that we have uh, in, in Australia and especially around several uh, industries. So totally agree with you on that. Yeah, and, and I mean, just while we're on that, um, I know that there's a couple of factors that are at play, um, but there's definitely a, a gap between I guess the value, like the the business is valuing uh, a skill set of a person that's got lots of experience in Australia versus a migrant skill set, and I guess you've got a bit of experience with um, how these issues play out, both at sort of uh, government and industry body level as well as as business level. And I was wondering if maybe you could um, you could touch on that briefly so that we could yeah dive into the valley of how it, how it's an issue. Of course, I mean, as you touched on, um, I'm happy to jump, like, you know, highlight two areas, government body level, and especially um, I've seen a common issue on, since I have been part of both as a job seeker trying to enter into the market, and then uh, when I moved into leadership role, um, sitting down with hiring teams and uh, senior executive level, um, you know, uh, leadership teams on hiring, I've understood that there's these two factors play in, especially around um, hiring migrants. Uh, One um, I mean, issue, not issue, I would say, and factor that comes in would be uh, the, the the educational qualifications of migrants. The recognition of the uh, overseas education qualifications often seem to have less um, value compared to a local degree uh, or certification. Of course, I mean, if you look at um, stats, some stats around Guardian, that's 350,000 skilled vacancies across the country. And it seems like there's only 33% of migrants arriving permanently have post-school qualifications recognized. So this is more uh, towards that industry, government level certifications and you know um, assessments on how they recognized uh, migrant overseas qualifications. That is something that um, uh, employees have less control of. But if you look at from a more employment side, it seems there's there's a lack of recognition to the and uh, lack of understanding 
of the overseas qualifications when during the hiring process. For an example, for a civil engineer with a bachelor's degree overseas and a two years commercial experience, same overseas as well, would struggle to get their first job uh, here in Australia with the gap of not having any uh, local experience or um, civil engineering degree. I mean, as we touched on earlier, the knowledge of uh, local standards, let's say health and safety compliance standards are extremely important. For certain industries, it might, it might be a must. So I might be oversimplifying it, but it's really important that um, those kind of learnings, like understanding of compliance standards can be learned through training. Um, so it has to yeah. be included into the, you know, factored into the um, hiring process. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And um, I, I just sort of got me thinking about... Um, Another thing that's definitely a gap as a hirer um, in in these situations is um, a lot of times as a hirer, you've got an understanding of the types of businesses that you typically hire from. Um, Even so, local industry experience aside, um, if we're talking civil engineering, there's certain big civil engineering companies in Australia and you can very quickly identify those on somebody's CV. um, But if the experience isn't local and isn't with one of those companies being able to identify it, it's actually quite hard for people to identify which company it's similar to um like as in being able to go okay then it's not experience in australia but it's experience doing the similar types of projects in a similar type of business i think there's even a gap there where where people often put it in the too hard basket yeah. and go they'll just say no um because you know understanding those nuances is, is going to take people too much time totally agree i mean uh civil engineering is a prime example uh, of that as you said like just evaluating a candidate based on the skills and the value they have provided in their previous role rather than just that local experience um especially around um, roles that are not customer facing i would say yeah. Uh, if you look at an example, let me share a, like a quick story. I mean, this is more into accounting. Um, I had a recent client where like, you know, she had significant experience in accounting. Also, one of the most important competencies the role was asking for was Power BI, so which she had substantial experience building dashboards, generating insights and you know, really uh, achieving measurable results. Um, contributing to the improving profits and you know, reducing company costs. But after going through hiring process, she realized that that local limited local experience factor was the reason that she didn't get through and then didn't get the job. I mean, having said that, I completely understand having a knowledge on the local accounting standards um, are important, uh, but um, really the um, I believe the company should really look at on the hiring criteria based on specific. If, if it is a really a global universal skill such as Power BI, um, they should evaluate on how, what values uh, or what skills, what achievements that they have generated through those skills. Um, yeah. Rather than yeah, I, I, I think I like, I mean, I completely understand what you're saying because um, I mean, it, it's almost like, the, the businesses in Australia, I guess there are lots of countries that have this issue, um, but we're talking about it in the Australian context here, um, are willing to go, you know, uh, we're looking for somebody that's really great with Power BI, uh, but we're willing to invest the three years of investment to get that person with local, two years of local accounting experience up to five years of Power BI, 
rather than the person that's really expert in Power BI and has all of that experience as well, invest the much less period of time to bring them up to scratch on Australian standards, um, which is interesting. I guess the, and that's probably where it comes back to that, um, the qualifications as well, is that there's an assumption that the qualifications done in Australia are to Australian standards for those industries. So um, you do often find people, and this happens a lot in engineering, and I'm sure it would with other degrees as well, where they have a bachelor's degree Mm -hmm. in the field and then they have either a master's or another bachelor's degree by coming to Australia um, to to sort of prove their experience rather Mm -hmm. than just, you know, investing in the development of the person and and taking that a little bit further. Yeah, um, totally agree, John. I mean, just that effort on investing on as you touched on again, correctly, like just investing on that um, effort to develop a candidate uh, on a training need and, and evaluating someone. I mean, if you look at, it's a shift of a mindset as well. I would, I, my belief it often comes down, I mean, for a company, you, you should know better than me around, you know, working, you know, helping companies hire great people. Yeah. Um, it comes down to few universal goals, as I believe, like accepted uh, goals for a company to hire people it can be, revenue generation, customer traction or um, satisfaction, uh, market awareness, cost reduction or process efficiency. So, I mean, if you really look at um, um, why companies hire uh, and then really have a um, transparent process around what specific competencies that they look at and how candidates' um, skills or achievements are aligned with those goals, can have more, um, you know, effectiveness on, and then filling that gap around how getting someone like a migrant with no local experience into a company, and then investing um, on a professional development plan. Yeah. Um, that that's I would think would be a um, um, far more better approach. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that it. Um, I mean, some of this is touching on potentially more, even more deep rooted. Not even more equally deep-rooted issues, um, which are that I'd say that there's a large portion of Australian companies, I don't know whether it would be a majority, but a large portion of Australian companies don't uh, don't invest enough in developing their people full stop. Uh, development of people isn't a priority. Mm-hmm. Um, and w- when they go to hire a, you're a business analyst when you go to hire a business analyst we want someone who's been a business analyst for five years and they'll be staying in a business analyst role for another few years if they get hired here um rather than hiring you know someone with the skills to be a business analyst but without having had that role yet there's there's not that want to invest in people's development and train them and and i guess see the long-term rewards of that which is potentially why uh, over the last few years there's uh, i know we had COVID, but there's been increasingly high turnover in, in a lot of businesses as people don't get development opportunities so they leave to find them elsewhere. Totally agree, John. Um, it's just um, re-emphasize the point of the importance of investing uh, yeah. in people and have a, um, you know, uh, people um, staying back in companies and not moving for other opportunities. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the reasons I originally reached out was I was there was a couple of posts that I read of yours of, I guess, your experience um, and the experience of others sort of um, adapting to different both hiring situations but situations in um, in career life in Australia and um, 
I was just wondering how, I guess, what what sort of ways you support people, and, and I guess some ways that people can um, can take more care of this, both as an organisation, because I know that organisations can provide a better landing pad for people to be successful in roles, um, but also um, how people can upskill themselves to to make sure that they do land those roles and and uh, and thrive when they land. Absolutely, John. I mean, it's a a uh, very personal uh, kind of experience for me being a migrant, as you said, um, I believe that uh, part is a two-way street, uh, both from a company's perspective and then the individual being a migrant as well. Um, sharing my personal experience being a migrant, you know, feeling of a new environment, nav- navigating unfamiliar customs, slangs, and adjusting to different work culture can present its whole, you know, challenges. I mean, if I can share a few stories, um, I think that will connect with the audience more. And I remember when I, you know, was, this was just the first few days after I found my first job after six months of rejections, you know, I was going through, uh, the company was going through a merger. So there was a you know, lot of changes going on, meetings back to back. And I was invited into, I remember a meeting, uh, like a crucial meeting uh, to talk about a, a change in SAP uh, because my background was business analysts and systems. So, I mean, I, Remember, I checked through the previous meeting notes because I was quite new. Uh, and then I joined the meeting uh, with my manager and a, uh, another teammate. And first thing I noted was that my colleague was sharing ideas very openly in front of senior level uh, managers. And I thought, you know, why not uh, seniors speak first? You know, uh, that was one of the shocks that I, uh, you know, got because, you know, I, this was my first hand experience as working in an Australian workplace. Now, despite I had questions, I had prepared many questions, you know, because based on my SAP knowledge, I've, you know, pointed out few process issues, maps that I wanted to discuss, but I hesitated to interact and I waited for a pause to speak up. And unfortunately, that never came. So my first meetings in, you know, uh, Australia were more of a sit back and observe type of uh, experience and the underlying experience or the value behind this verse that you see in Sri Lanka and some Asian countries, there was a noticeable hierarchy uh, in most companies that I work for. So it was common for you to wait uh, for your chance and uh, after a senior members speak or leadership teams speak before I contribute. So, but here in Australia, it, I realized that it took me, you know, months to realize that how meetings work and different communication styles that I feel is one of the most challenging um, shifts that migrants face. Um, I got to know that meetings were more livelier, you know, conversations and speaking was encouraged regardless of my seniority or the role. But I wish that if I had more access to the training and if it was part of the onboarding uh, from the company side, I knew my experience as a migrant within my first few months would be much more productive and happier. So that's, that's one of the key um, gaps as a migrant and then now I coach people on that, especially a migrants on different communication styles in, in Australia, especially around workplace for them to adapt better. Yeah. I mean, coaching like that is fantastic because as you said, it, it's sort of the things that, um, although it should probably be part of the way that a company onboards people, it's the things that they forget and assume that people have just absorbed over the, years growing up in australia if you if you were if you were from like you know if you're from or migrated when you were young um but if you migrate over and it's your first job not having that um that cultural uh context in meetings and as you sort of said hierarchies and everything it it would take time to adjust and 
Um, I really you know, respect the fact that you do all of that training and development for people because it would help them get a head start. And I mean, I know from having been in businesses as well that that stuff is often poorly thought out, both from uh, people where the culture is similar, but the country is different. Um, for example, people coming from the UK mm-hmm. to Australia um, versus other countries in, in maybe the Asian region or something. Um, it, like people would not like people from the UK would still have trouble, not with the meeting side of things, but the, there was still no recognition that their experience was different than any other job applicant or any other person that was starting in the business. It was, you know, adapt or fail rather than um, we'll we'll sort of provide an environment that'll make sure that you can be successful. Definitely. I mean, that's such a great point, John, because it's not just um, um, countries like Asia. I mean, you touch on UK, like uh, communication style could be um, similar to the culture here, but still there are things, I mean, if you get slangs, um, if I could share, like, um, I knew that if we take it in a very lighthearted way that you have to learn when you come to a new country, but in a workplace, it can present each, you know, its own challenges. For an example, I remember my manager asked to, you know, to prepare the preso. Um, and then I almost miss, missed that deadline because I just didn't understand what it was. And it was not because I come from an Asian country, but I've had friends coming from Germany, UK, and then it's really struggling to understand those slangs. So one company I remember had a really smart way of doing this because I joined Kaufland, which was a um, German startup company who was trying to launch up here. Uh, they had this thing called uh, Aussie Slang Dictionary um, as a resource for everyone. Um, that That's, I feel, that was such a great um, initiative, uh, not because it's accessible, but also to acknowledging that uh, we are not assuming uh, slangs and then allowing people to have that environment to learn together as well um and support people from diverse backgrounds yeah i I mean i really like that as well um as you said just not making assumptions and providing a whole lot of guides and advice and uh you do like you would have noticed the same thing in workplaces that i have and this sort of happens throughout um my career and I'm, i'm not a migrant to to australia um but uh, the assumptions of people all throughout the business, but this happens at probably most with senior management who are communicating to all of the business at once, um, using not not only just slang, um, but uh, cultural references that only people um, that have been in the country for a long time would understand, um, like uh, like an analogy or something, but a, a cultural reference analogy where. If you've got a you know a large portion of people that didn't grow up in Australia, the all the context is lost. It, it makes no sense to anybody, um, and it's one of those ones where you know taking a little bit more time to properly describe it rather than using an analogy that a lot of people will miss. Um, it, it it adds a lot of value to people's experience, and I don't think that people realize how. Um, how much that's respected by people when they actually can fully understand a message rather than knowing that you're missing part of it. <laughs> exactly. That's where I think a um, um, few of the strategies that I um, experienced as a migrant adapting to the you know Australian workplace and, and then later on um, trying to build teams in companies, um, you know, diverse teams that 
few strategies if I can share is one of the things that early in my career, the mentoring or body programs um, really helped me just to have that um, accountable, like the partner, uh, especially in the first days to understand um, having someone who knew in and outs of the workplace culture, uh, you know, helped me a lot to navigate the nuances um, and adapt better. Often I, I got guidance, you know, in the office dynamics. It's not just, as you said, the slangs, but ways of communicating um, office specific culture, the dynamics, um, and then also helping me with the dream introductions. Uh, yeah. Simple thing as that just really helped me to um, have confidence, uh, be happy, and then, you know, really contribute to my fullest potential in those companies. Yeah, I, I think that like it's good that mentorship and buddy programs are fairly widespread in businesses, but I think one of the ways that businesses fall down in this, and it's something that we all do and we can all fix really, really quickly, is that we don't build these things into uh, templates that everyone has to follow, um, as in there's no guide for how to be a mentor or a buddy created by the business. They just sort of say you are the mentor or you are the buddy. So everyone's mentor and buddy experience is different. There's not necessarily a um, an onboarding process where as part of the checklist before the person's first day, that person is identified who will be the mentor and buddy. So some managers will allocate one, some managers won't allocate one. And just taking the time to build in these really simple structures which support people no matter whether you're a migrant or not they're just great things to have when you're early in a workplace as you said having somebody that you can ask all of the what quote unquote stupid questions to like as in i don't understand this thing and someone just it can explain it very quickly and say hey we're all going to lunch would you like to come like just little things like that which can make someone start to a job so much better um it's both not only doing it yourself as an individual when you're leading a team, but it's being able to build that into the processes so that everyone gets that positive experience because yeah, without it, uh, as you sort of said, you can feel like you're um, drowning under the weight of learnings in those first few weeks, uh, especially, I mean, that happens in any job, especially if there's additional cultural overlay to it all. Definitely. I mean, um, I really like the point of uh, personalizing uh, that strategy, not having just a generic approach or a generic checklist for a mentoring or bullying program, like, you know, understanding um, from your high pro- like connective process from the hiring, you know, um, based on candidates' personality, the values, the skills have they have, and then connecting to a relevant mentor, deciding whether they need a buddy or not, and having that more personalized approach will, yeah. I think, is I- really crucial. Yeah. I totally agree that for me, it's just having the the process is there to make sure you go through the process of having that thought, which is, have we checked whether this person has a buddy or, or needs one or what person would be valuable? Have we spoken to them about the fact that they are going to be the buddy? Like it's really simple um, process maps. Um, I, I know that you would have done a lot of process mapping in your time um, at business processes, but really, really simple decision trees um that just help people to make more of the right decisions and then you can as you said um personalize it as much as you want from there but making sure that you create systems that make sure that no one drops the ball is is probably the most important thing for me that one of the not most important one of the easiest things that people can do tomorrow to start fixing some of this stuff like you can implement that process in a heartbeat it doesn't take very long at all exactly um um, totally agree on that yeah. Um, another thing that we talked about um, in, the, in the lead up is just the 
not only the, the benefits of diversity, but I guess just the different skills um, that people from different backgrounds bring. Um, and I know that this is something that you're quite passionate about as well. Um, so I just sort of wanted to maybe kick it over to you to um, to sort of jump into that and, and sort of talk more about, you know, transferable skills and the values of diversity. Absolutely, John. I mean, migrants um, bring a lot of skills and that can benefit a workplace, like especially many migrants, especially in Australia, like come with a strong STEM skills. As we all know, there is a you know huge competition for STEM skill migrants and uh, competition from other countries uh, to get these um, highly STEM skilled migrants, uh, such as US, Canada and Germany. So as for the top expert, I recently found out that they have warned that many of the industries uh, of the future of um, uh, skills that such as quantum information technology, AI, as we all know, the impact that it has made over the last one year, yeah. um, be it data science, climate technology, or even um, biotechnology. So most migrants come from these highly technical education systems uh, with um, coupled with these STEM skills. So having migrants who possess these skills can address not only the skill shortage, but also it can contribute to that innovation and growth that companies are looking at, which could be a crucial factor in, in today's world. And I mean, ultimately it'll be a win-win for both migrants uh, and the local uh, workforce as well. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I completely agree. And, and I've worked in, um, the, one of the first workplaces that I worked in was a, was a global engineering consultancy um, as an engineer. Uh, and I would say that we, I'm just sorry, I'm just thinking off the top of my head, maybe had 20 people that were a part of the engineering team that I was a part of. And in that 20, I would say that 17 weren't born in Australia. Mm -hmm. um, and there was definitely no issues with, you know, communication or, um, or anything. But what the, in fact, it was the opposite. It, because we were all uh, we were all working together and working through problems. We were covering all bases really, really well. Um, so people that think in slightly different styles or have had different experiences um, on the way to the point that we were then um, brought different things to the conversation. So instead of having four people bringing a very similar point of view into the conversation, a very similar experience, a very similar background, we would usually have all areas covered. And because everyone was trying to explore all areas because there were so many um, different backgrounds and opinions and ways of doing things out there, we usually got to better results quite quickly. It was great. Um, yeah, that's that's. I often like found that experience as well. Having that, um, you know, combined a range of skill sets um, and and accepting, acknowledging those will lead to productive out outcomes. So I, I totally agree with that. And one other thing that I could highlight is the entrepreneurial thinking, John, because um, this is like having an entrepreneur within an organization. Like normally I've um, coming from that kind of a uh, background and also um, in, in hiring teams as well, um, that migrants often bring that willingness to take risks, um, which can lead to increased innovation and creative problem solving. I mean, these days you companies use, you would know that they put a lot, lot of attention to people who uh, come with a process-driven mindset, innovative or uh, having um, uh, really an urge to problem solve. So I believe now companies can benefit now from these skills to you know continuously innovate and gain that competitive advantage. So that's also one of the skills, um, transferable skills that 
migrants might be that are not in that traditional job competencies or job descriptions. Yeah, I, I think that you're right. And, and it sort of goes um, to the heart of some of the issues we talked about earlier as well, is that in, uh, in hiring without thinking about people who are migrants, as in if you're excluding migrants from your hiring pipeline because you think it'll be too hard um, or it's, you know, it's easier to understand how someone's experience who's spent their whole life living in the same city and uh, graduated there and is maybe a little bit less experienced and everything, but, you know, safe choice. You're, you're both picking in your head what the safe choice is, which is someone who's similar to everybody else. So they're not bringing a difference in that way. Uh, and also you're not picking somebody who is uh, willing to take lots of risks, um, willing to, uproot their life and, and, and start something completely new in a, in a new country is definitely a sign of risk-taking. And really risk-taking is one of the very few strong indicators of, as you said, somebody's uh, entrepreneurship. Like you're not, you're not going to get better unless you try new things and you take risks. So um, that, that's, a, that's a double point uh, there. It's <laughs> <laughs> um, just that... Um understanding those um, different skill sets, uh, whether it's a migrant or in any um, company hiring process, like what um, additional skills that they bring to the table. Um, and, and one other thing that is that stand out to me as um, another one would be adaptability uh, and resilience. We've all gone through a, a massive pandemic and we've all been tested um, how companies uh, you know manage their operations uh, and then, you know, be competitive in a very uncertain period like that and um, so this is also another hallmark i would say for migrants and it's it's proven by the actions for someone who's just trying to move to a new country dropping everything with yeah. no family and friends adjusting to you know new norms um, and the openness to navigate uncertainty um, can be crucial to today's dynamic uh, you know workplace um, job so that's also i think it's uh, adaptability and resilience um, can be another skill that uh, that they bring in. Yeah, I, I think that even if you um, even if you're somebody who's only doing um, things, you know, to make things better and easier for your company, it's surely unequivocal by now that diversity improves a, a company's ability to function effectively. So at the very least, we should be looking at ways to make this much easier rather than excluding a, a portion of the hiring pool. And and that goes for whichever type of diversity we're talking about here. Um, it, could, it could be any. Um, but, but I mean, it's, it we're sort of talking about migrants here. It, it, it doesn't make sense to say it's easier to to sort of pass and go with somebody that's maybe a safer quote-unquote choice. Um, because you're just trading one problem for another, which is, you know, lack of diversity is going to lead to lack of competitiveness in the future. Um, so you can either work hard now and, and, and put in better processes and um, better systems to be able to support your hiring. It'll probably make your hiring easier because you'll be ruling out less people who are qualified um, and it'll lead to better long-term results anyway. So, yeah, I, I, you, you know that I'm a, I'm a big supporter of this uh, and the more ways that we can make companies uh, take these positive risks um, and it, I guess improve across the board, 
um, the better. Of course, John, hundred um, percent, and agree. I there's always a couple of questions I like to I like to finish a podcast on. I know I've sort of um, brushed through some of the some of the main topics, but I, I I'm trying to get this under the forty minutes like I normally would. <laughs> I guess what is a lesson that your career has taught you that you think that everyone should learn at some point in their life? A great question, John. Um, for me, I would say to be a continuous learner. I mean, especially in my career, Sadi, from a junior role, having to start over uh, in Australia after I migrated uh, and then moving into leadership roles in multinational companies, I found that having that mindset to learn continuously, being curious and open for change has helped me not only improve my professional life, but also the personal side of things. So one lesson would be just see the challenges as an opportunity uh, for learning. And if it makes you uncomfortable, that's where the growth happens. Yeah, I love it. Um, uh, I sort of like giving people a tangible takeaway, but there's been heaps of tangible takeaways um, in this. Um, For me, as I said, simple ones like you could write a process in an hour that would improve your onboarding and it would just be to add a simple checklist to see whether um, the person would require a, a buddy or a mentor um, on the way in and identifying who that person would be with the hiring manager. That's something you could do to improve your hiring regardless across the board. But is there anything else that you could think is just one of those tangible takeaways people can implement tomorrow and start getting better results? Um, simple thing as like a blind, I would say a blind resume screening. Um, like we talk about uh, having that safe choices. So just removing that uh, unconscious biases around hiring such as, you know, just the blind screening around uh, removing personal information, gender, age, names, just from the initial resume, and then having uh, a checklist to understand uh, the person that you're hiring, um, ha- have a more structured process, and then set up uh, uh, um, a more effective onboarding uh, process that is more personalized. That's one action uh, step that I would think of, uh, John. It's a good one as well. Um, on the podcast that I did uh, with Judy, Anderson Firth, um, who was the CEO of Startup Victoria, now the Startup Network, and now she's doing a whole lot of other big and amazing things. A lot of what startups do to get better talent is blind resume reviews. Um, It just removes that bias that as much as we all want to put to the side, Mm -hmm. uh, no one can fully. Um, So being able to, yeah, there's tools that that can do that for you. So being able to use tools to provide it or, um, even if you don't have technology tools, having somebody else support you with that process um, can can be something that can help you with that. Did I have any other questions? I think that was it. I think that was it. I think that's it. I really do appreciate you jumping on the podcast with me, Pan. I know that probably none of the depth that we've, we've sort of done here is going to do some of this stuff justice, but there are lots of ways to sort of follow and get in touch with you. The first thing that I could recommend to everyone would be to jump on LinkedIn and search for Pam Pereira, which is P-A-N space P-E-R-E-R-A and follow him because a lot of the content, I'm not a migrant and I read it all uh, because I find it really, really valuable both for my understanding and improving my understanding and empathy for others, but just really good general tips as well. Um, and I guess what are the other ways that people can can get in touch with you and learn? Yeah, thanks so much, uh, John, again, like just reminding me and, um, you know, uh, inviting me to uh, share these thoughts and um, quite relevant, timely topics in today's world. So other ways to be contacted, I'm mostly active on LinkedIn, as you mentioned, and then if not, 
uh, they can uh, reach out to me on my website, which is alibadigital.com. Those are the two ways that um, anyone can reach out to me, John. Yeah, and I think that you can get to alibadigital.com as well through LinkedIn. So make sure that you do connect or follow Pan. Um, that's going to be the easiest way. And um, Pan, again, thank you so much for joining us and talking about these important topics and um, I look forward to to maybe when I've got a few more questions setting up a, setting up another one of these in the in the coming months. Definitely happy to you know have more conversations and um, collaborate with you, John. Thanks again for the invite. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Uh, this and every episode is going to be brought to you by Rosewood Partners, which is the Uh, recruitment agency that I founded based on the idea that recruitment agencies and recruitment in general should be done differently. Uh, If you'd like to learn any more about Rosewood Partners, you can find us at rosewoodpartners.co. I'll include in the show notes a link to my email address, the website and my LinkedIn page if you'd like to connect with me. Have a great day and thanks again for listening.